Let's open in the Word of God to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. And we'll read several sections here. First, I want to read the Beatitudes at the beginning of the chapter, Matthew 5, beginning at verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. We'll continue reading through verse 20. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but upon a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Then we go down to verse 38, and the text for this evening is verses 38 through 42. And I won't read those again, but I will read now through the end of the chapter. Verse 38, ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your heavenly of your Father which is in heaven. 
For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. We read this far in the holy and inspired word of God. I want to begin by reminding you that in this second part of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is applying the, the instruction or the principle of verse 20, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus applies that with six contrasts. Ye have heard, but I say unto you, When Jesus introduces those contrasts, he's not teaching us something different to the Old Testament scriptures. When he refers to the Old Testament scriptures, he says, it is written. Here he says, ye have heard. And he's referring to the way that the Old Testament scriptures had been interpreted by the scribes and Pharisees and the instruction, the teaching that they gave to the people so that the people were familiar with this teaching, not from the Old Testament scriptures, but from the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus takes us, he takes his disciples, he takes his audience back to the Old Testament scriptures, to their original intent. He, as it were, hits the reset reset to restore things back to the manufacturer's settings, that is, to God's original intent in the law and the commandments. And he's saying to his disciples, when I take you back to that, then your righteousness will exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Our righteousness must go deeper than the external keeping of the law. And the depth of what Jesus teaches is very clear in the text that we consider this evening. He doesn't reduce the demands of the law, but he explains and he applies them in a much more rigorous way than the scribes and Pharisees would explain and apply them to themselves. What Jesus is teaching in these verses has to do with our reaction. How do you react when you have been wrong? And Jesus says, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. And apart from grace, that's entirely impossible. Only when the gospel has set us free from ourselves can we ever live out the principles that Jesus sets before us in these words this evening. And that puts the Christian in stark contrast to the unbeliever. We are light, and we are salt. And we live in a day and age, and in a society, and a country, which is all about personal rights and liberties. Don't tell me what to do. Don't make me share my goods. We're all about personal possessions, personal rights. In contrast, in the text here, the believer 
turns the other cheek and goes the extra mile. And this is not abstract. This applies, of course, to our life, our life in society and our life in all of our relationships. So that the principles that Jesus sets before us here are principles that we should take home and live out in our marriages, in our families, in the demands of our daily life, in the workplace, and in the relationships that we have not only with believers but also with unbelievers. So let's consider tonight the law concerning retaliation. Notice with me first the distorted view of that law, second, Jesus' reset on that law, and then third, the great example I think I have in the bulletin, the great power. First, the distorted view. The words that Jesus references here and quotes in verse 38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, do come directly from the Old Testament Scriptures in at least three places, Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24 and verse 20, and Deuteronomy 19 and verse 21. And they are commonly known as the lex talionis, the law concerning retaliation. And in that word talionis, you would recognize that English word retaliation. And what we have in the lex talionis, or the law concerning retaliation, are some very important principles concerning justice. The Bible speaks to justice. The Bible speaks to justice in every age, and it's because the Bible is God's Word, a reflection of God's own character as the just God, and God himself is the one who determines justice. And so what we really have in this lex talionis is a reflection of the character of God himself as the just God. He's just in his dealings with man. He's just in his punishment of sin. He's just in executing his wrath upon his son on the cross of Calvary. He's just when he tells us tonight, vengeance is mine and I will repay. So this expression, eye for an eye, Tooth for tooth is found in the Old Testament Scriptures. And I want to point to one of the three passages and and just read it quickly. That's Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 16. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, both uh, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days, and the judges shall make diligent inquisition And behold, if the witness be a false witness and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. 
So here's a, a principle of justice that's set down in the law of the Old Testament Scriptures. And Jesus does not come to contradict the Scriptures. And so we, we should think about this, this law for a little while and, and its advantage. And there are four things that I want to say about this law. First of all, it put justice and revenge in the hands of the legal system, in the hands of judges. And this law of retaliation was never intended as a rule for personal revenge. In fact, it eliminated personal revenge. That's clear from all three of the passages, but especially the one here. Here are two parties in a dispute, and they're called to stand before the judges, and the judges will make the judgment to the determination, and then the judges will execute the vengeance, the justice. So this is a rule for the judge, not a barbaric, a barbaric and, prince, and primitive form of legislation that allows everybody to go out and take vengeance as they please. But God, in these passages in the Old Testament, is setting down how justice must be executed by the judges in the land. So that first. Second, it ensured, ensured this, that the punishment fit the crime. Again, that's an important principle for justice. It ensures, on the one hand, that people don't get off lightly when they commit a crime. But on the other hand, it ensures that there's not excessive retribution for crime. This is justice. Justice is not rehabilitation. Justice is not therapy. But justice is an appropriate and a corresponding sentence to the crime that has been committed. And that's a clear principle in Scripture. You go back to Genesis 9, right after the flood, and God says, blood for blood. And that's the principle. And it's a principle that really works out in all of our living, in the way that God operates. What a man sows, that shall he also reap. And if we destroy the temple of God which is our bodies, him shall God destroy. So the punishment matches the crime. Third, this lex talionis, this law, taught equality before the law. It's been said that justice is blind, that it has no regard for color, for race, for class, for status, or for connections, that no one is above the law. Justice is blind. And what determines the appropriate punishment is the crime committed, not the one who has committed the crime. And that's very clear in the Old Testament, uh, in the laws that were set down for strangers and for bondservants in the lives of the people of Israel. The same law applied with regard to them and with regard to your treatment of them or your treatment of anyone else in the nation. They had the same rights, we could say, under the law. Then there's one more thing that this law, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, did, and that was to restrain lawlessness by striking fear in the heart of 
the evildoer. And that's especially clear in the passage that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Listen again to the end of verse 19, the beginning of verse 20. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you, and those which remain shall hear and fear, and henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. Why must justice be administered? It must be administered to prevent evil and crime. And that's what Romans 13 says as well. Rulers are to be a terror to evildoers, ministers of God, to execute vengeance and justice. And there is a merciful purpose in the execution of justice, and that is to protect the innocent, prevent crime. And where that doesn't happen, as we see in our modern society, then all kinds of lawlessness and wickedness abounds. So this was a principle for justice in the Old Testament scriptures set down which has lasting significance because God himself is just. So what does Jesus mean when he says, ye have heard that it's been said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Well, what Jesus means is that the Pharisees and the scribes had distorted this clear principle to their own advantage. And as we look at the way that this is distorted by the scribes and the Pharisees, let's not fail to look at ourselves, because in the same way that they would distort it, we, by nature, would also distort this principle of justice. First, they distorted it in this way, that they took the law into their own hands. They took the principle that God had intended for the civil magistrate, and they applied it to their own personal conflicts. And then what happened was what God had intended for the maintenance of law and order in society, as they tried to administer each one on their own, instead became the cause of violence and disorder in society. And now think about your own nature and mine, what do we want to do? We want to take the law, the principle of vengeance here, into our own hands. And so your children will say something like this, he hit me first. Or you might hear from your own lips even, you should have heard what she said about me. And rather than deferring to the authority of a justice system, we want retribution ourselves. Whereas the Bible says vengeance is mine, God's. And God, as the God of justice, who operates on the principles of justice and appropriate revenge, gives that right to the civil authority. Just look at Romans chapter 13. But we want to take the law in our own hands. And probably the most frequent way that we do this, and it shows the evil of our nature, is the way that we talk about others. Gossip. Slander. So first, they took the law into their own hands. Second, in their application of this law, they were partial. Even, we could say, racist. How so? In Exodus chapter 21, verse 12... The law that the, the word that's used in the application of this law is the word neighbor. And they took that to say, well, my neighbor is my fellow Jew. 
And so the principle of justice that God sets down here, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, applies only with regard to my fellow Jews. And then this is what they did. They thought that they could kill a slave or a foreigner. And they got away with it because there wasn't an equal application of the law with regard to the foreigner and the slave. In fact, that was written right into their laws, this, that if a Jew would kill a foreigner, the punishment would be less than death. But now again, that exposes to us an aspect of our sinful heart and nature, isn't it? Which is to despise those who are different to ourselves. And that comes very clear in the comes out very clearly in the New Testament with regard to the Judaizers who brought over Jewish practices and laws, the laws of the scribes and the Pharisees, into the Christian church or tried to. And so they in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 16, Paul says, forbade us to speak to Gentiles that they might be saved. And the attitude was this, these people are not worthy of the gospel. There's a pride that we too can sometimes have with regard to others different than ourselves. And then not only do we despise people because of race or class or education or background, but we despise in the end the power of the grace of God to save. Third, the scribes and the Pharisees, in their strict application of this principle, used it to excuse their own hateful and hurtful conduct. And that's especially what Jesus is aiming at here, because their idea was tit for tat. If he does this to me, I'm going to return it to him. And the mentality was that they were justified, and there was an obsession in their lives and in their society to get even with each other rather than to apply the principle of love that should govern all our obedience to the law of God. And they ignored the real requirement of the law then, to love God and to love the neighbor. Jesus says, you have heard... And he's saying to his disciples and his audience, you know what the scribes and the Pharisees say about the lex talionis, but I say unto you. And he hits the reset to take everybody back to God's intention with the law. Notice how he begins that in verse 39. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. That could be read more literally this way, that you resist not the one who does evil, or don't rise up against the one who does evil to you. Don't rise up in personal vengeance or revenge against the one who sins against you and does evil to you or takes advantage of you. Now, I want to point to a couple of uh, things, general comments about that before we look at each of these four examples that Jesus gives here specifically. And the first is this, that what Jesus says here is not new. What Jesus says here is not new. 
Some biblical interpreters and commentators take it that way, that what Jesus is doing here is setting down a law for the new covenant, which is different than the law in the old covenant. That the old covenant said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, everybody may take vengeance in his own way and in his own hands, but now in the new new covenant, turn your cheek. That's not the way to understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is teaching something here about what the Scriptures always said, what God always said. And he's telling us that we have to understand Scripture in light of Scripture. He's setting before us a a very clear principle for understanding the Word of God, and that is that we let Scripture interpret Scripture and not twist it to suit our own interests, or the way that we want to understand it. And that's very clear as you go back to the Old Testament Scriptures, where you find these two things, and there are many other examples, but I just want to read two passages. The first is Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. And you'll see the similarity to what Jesus is teaching. Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. That must be taken together with the law concerning retaliation. And the law concerning retaliation has to do with the justice system and the judges executing judgment, justice, against evildoers and for the protection of the innocent and the vulnerable. And Jesus is saying, don't take it into your own hands. This is what the Old Testament Scripture says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but love thy neighbor as thyself. So again, in Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 29, Proverbs 24 and verse 29, Say not, I will do so to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Don't say that is the instruction of the Old Testament Scriptures. And that very clearly goes against the teaching that the scribes and the Pharisees had adopted. So they ignored the Scripture. Jesus is telling us, as he goes back to the Old Testament, Scripture must interpret Scripture. That's not a law for personal vengeance. Also, we must notice this about Jesus' instruction here. When he says, turn the cheek, go the extra mile, give him your cloak and your coat both, give him the money he asked for, Jesus is not teaching us here pacifism. He's not teaching us here the radical teaching that we must just always bend over backwards, give to everyone that asks, and so on. No, The scriptures tell us to resist evil. And so what Jesus says here, I I say to you, resist not evil, mustn't be taken in the ultimate sense that we not stand up against that which is wrong and evil. But he's saying, when someone does evil to you, it's not your place to stand up against them. So the scriptures call us to stand up for the protection of the innocent. Civil authority is given the sword power to kill, that is to deal with sin and crime, and to do that for the safety of society, for the order of society, for the protection of the innocent. And Jesus himself, if you look at his ministry, did resist evil. He rebuked very often the scribes and the Pharisees for their mistreatment 
of others. And he went into the temple and with a whip, he drove them from his father's house of prayer. So he's not teaching pacifism here. Also, we must notice this, that the things that Jesus sets before us in these verses are not to be taken in the absolute literal sense. Turn the other cheek, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, Jesus is setting before us here a bigger principle, isn't he? And the bigger principle is for each of us as individuals, don't take revenge but instead be meek in your reaction. This has to do with how you react when you have been personally wronged. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. And Jesus is really taking those beatitudes now and applying them to our keeping of the law, and especially now the law of love. And then notice one more thing about these words, that Jesus' instruction here has really an emphasis And the emphasis is about your life in the broader society. Sometimes we we think of these principles for Christian living, and we think, well, it's very good that we apply them in marriage. It's very good that we apply them in the church as we live with others. But Jesus, and certainly it does matter in the home, but Jesus is talking here about how we live in the world. And he's going to develop that in the following verses, love your enemies, do good to them that despitefully hurt you and persecute you. So how do we respond? How do we react when we have been wronged by an evildoer? And there are four different scenarios, as it were, that Jesus puts before us here. The first is in verse 39. Whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And what Jesus is talking about here is an offense, an attack on your personal dignity. That's the meaning of a slap in the face. We understand that. Jesus says your right cheek... And if someone smites you on your right cheek, that means they're doing it with the back of their hand. And a slap with the back of the hand was especially an insult in this culture. And a public insult, because this was something that would be done and was done in front of others to shame a person. Of course, then, it has to do with your personal dignity, your name and your reputation and lies that are spoken about you. Things that bring you into disrepute before others that aren't true. How do we resist the evildoer in such a situation? How do we, as it were, fight against insults as Christians? Has someone said something to damage your name? Has someone lied about you? And of course, this is important for us not just personally, But isn't it important for us as a church and churches? What are others saying about us that isn't true? How do we respond? Well, we know 
what the scriptures say. Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Retaliation, revenge, only adds fuel to a fire. And it never, never overcomes the evil. The response of strength is meekness. When one turns the other cheek, that's a figurative expression, isn't it? But it's being willing to bear wrong, not only, but being willing to bear even more wrong when you've been wronged already. When one turns the other cheek, then evil and the evildoer have met an opponent stronger than themselves. Because when you leave it to God, vengeance is mine, I will repay. When you leave it to God, you're not allowing yourself to be mastered by the evil or the one who commits evil against you. And doesn't this show the difference between a man with a spiritual perspective and a man with a natural or a carnal perspective on life? Everything in our nature, that is, everything about us that's natural, wants to respond in kind. But when you're a, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you triumph with meekness, Jesus is saying. This is how it becomes clear that the gospel has changed you. You don't respond in kind. You don't take vengeance into your own hands. When your personal dignity is insulted, you respond with meekness. We have so much growing to do here, don't we? The second example that Jesus gives has to do with personal property. And you see that in verse 40. If any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And Jesus is using an illustration here that would have been very clear to these people concerning two pieces of clothing. They would have worn these two pieces of clothing, one on the outside, a heavier one, and then one underneath, an inner piece of clothing. And we use the expression today that somebody wants to take the shirt off your back. And you, of course, understand the idea of that. They're going to leave you without clothes, naked. And so, uh, of course, what Jesus is saying here is, again, a principle, not something to be taken in the literal sense. But Jesus is saying this, it's better to lose a suit of clothes than to be entangled in a suit of the law. When we find ourselves in situations where someone is after us to bankrupt us, to take away our earthly possessions, 
What are we thinking? Are we standing on our rights? Our rights? That's mine? To the Christian, the coat and the cloak are not important. They're neither here nor there. This is challenging, isn't it? Because, and here's how the Christian is changed. This is challenging because we are so attached to our things. You say, no, I'm not. Well, then go home and do what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. Sell all you have and give all your money away. See how attached you are to what you have. What have you given up? To be a Christian. What have you given up to be a follower of Christ? What does it cost you? Not just financially. What does it cost you to be a Christian? And what you see here in part of the response is not just meekness, but even generosity. If he is going to sue you and take one of your pieces of clothing, well, give him both of them. Overcome evil with good. That's Romans 12. But then what about me? What do I have left? And the answer of Scripture is you're set free. You're set free from your bondage to things. The third, so the first has to do with personal dignity, the second with personal property, and now the third has to do with personal liberty, personal liberty. Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain, or go with him two. And Jesus is again using an illustration from their daily life that they would have understood. The Jews at this time were under Roman occupation. And Roman soldiers, doing their police work, I suppose, were present in their society as occupying force. And the Roman soldier had the right at any time to stop somebody in the street to compel him to carry his things for a mile. Probably these Roman soldiers carried everything that they owned on their back. Perhaps they had heavy armory, shields. And of course they get weary carrying it all themselves. And the Roman law said, you can just fetch somebody off the street. We, we see this with Jesus' own crucifixion when Simon was compelled to carry the cross to Calvary. How do you respond when you're compelled against your will to sacrifice some of your time to walk that mile carrying somebody else's stuff? It has to do with reaction again, doesn't it? What do you do at the end of the mile? And Jesus is talking about a man who instead of dumping the stuff and running, turns to the soldier, smiles and says, I think I have energy to carry it 
another mile. And so they go on. And by this time, the Roman soldier is saying, well, there's something different about this person. There's something different about the character of this person. And in that second mile, you have opportunity then to give a testimony of the gospel and the grace of God that has changed you. What is it that distinguishes you as a Christian? What is it that you're emulating, that you're showing in your life by such willingness and generosity? Self says, I have my rights. The gospel says, what further can I do for you? And now, of course, there are all kinds of applications of that for us, not only in our home and family life. Dishes kitchen, going that extra mile, we say, but also in the church, in the workplace. This is the Christian and his reaction to a demand on his personal liberty. There's one more example here that Jesus gives, and it's verse 42. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. And now he's talking about wealth and financial security. The things that you're holding on to for your own security. He's certainly not giving us here an absolute rule that whenever somebody asks something of you, you must give that to them. There's wisdom and caution that we must use in giving and lending. But this is what Jesus is getting at. There are people with real needs who will be presented to you and their needs will be presented to you in your life. That was certainly true in Jesus' day. The gospel accounts are dotted with hungry beggars. And we often are confronted with people with real needs. And what are we governed by in our decision I'll say, to not give. Sometimes it's miserliness, isn't it? Heaping treasures to ourselves. It's so hard to let go of that dollar. We'll make excuses. But are we freely giving? Freely lending? Jesus says, give to him that asketh, lend to him that would borrow from you. And later in chapter 6, he'll do that. He says, do that without being anxious for tomorrow or anxious about what you'll eat or anxious about what you'll drink or how you'll be clothed. Give. Has the gospel set you free from the security of money? And don't you feel the challenge of what Jesus is teaching us here? In our marriages and homes, in our roles as parents, as we live with each other, in the workplace, or as brothers and sisters in a home, when we pull up at an intersection, what is it that 
makes me hold on to my money? Why is it so hard to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile? In the end, it's this. It's so hard to die to self, to put self to death. And why is that? Is it maybe because we haven't embraced and understood the reality of the gospel and what Christ has done for us? How can I truly have this attitude of meekness, this generosity, this willingness to go the extra mile, to give freely? Well, only as I believe and know what Christ has done for me. What do we see in Jesus Christ? Well, we certainly see an example of doing good. And you see that as you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, a ministry in which he looked out for the needy and the vulnerable and so on. But, but what we see in Jesus Christ in, in doing these things is especially an immense strength, a strength in his meekness. When he was wronged, he overcome evil with good. Think, for example, of the cross. And his prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he says to us, I am meek and lowly of heart. Learn of me. They mistreated me. They spat in my face. They smote me on the cheek. They compelled me to go to Calvary. They took away my coat and my cloak. And what did he do? He gave his back to the smiters. He hid not his face from shame and spitting. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth rightly. He himself bare our sins in his own body on the tree. He emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. He took on him the form of a servant. He became obedient to the death of the cross. For the sake of your and my salvation. And beloved, there was no weakness in his meekness. No, rather it was the power of his divine nature enduring the heavy weight of the wrath of God that we deserved as the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the power of his divine nature that went forward in obedience to the will of the Father. And the scriptures say, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. And now if you look at the Christian life, and look at everything that's set before us, as principles for Christian living, here too, in what Jesus puts before us. Isn't this where we often faint and grow weary? I've got to do that for you again and again 
the extra mile. I've got to take that from her again. And again, turning the other cheek. And now lest you grow weary and faint in that, consider Jesus, who bore such contradiction of sinners. And I said not just as an example, but a power. And it's the power that God works in the hearts of those who believe the gospel by his Holy Spirit so that we lay aside all desire of revenge. We're willing to bear a slap against our own personal dignity to go the extra mile in order to serve, to give willingly to him that asks of us to do this, not just in the service of fellow believers, but to do this as Christians because we have been set free from the bondage of self. As the gospel sets you free from yourself. Don't ask that question just tonight while you sit here and you say, yes, I'm a believer. I've been set free from self. But ask yourself this question tomorrow when your name is slandered and you hear it. Or when you're in the workplace or at home, and the demands are that extra mile from your boss or your children, or when you're presented with need, or when you're tempted to take vengeance, to lash out. I've been set free from bondage to self. That's true freedom. And it comes as we commit our way as Christ did to him that is God who's faithful. Amen. Father, we're mindful of the ways in which thy word speaks to us through the instruction of Jesus here in a very convicting way. We do live too much for self. Lord, help us to be those who daily mortify the deeds of the flesh and crucify not only sin, but the old man and the love for self. So that we, following in the Savior's steps, may be willing to, to bear wrong and to give up what we have and our rights for others, following in the steps of the Savior. We're thankful that he has done this for us, that he, for whom it was not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, took on him the form of a servant, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. This is what he did. This was his mind. And by the Holy Spirit, Lord, make this mind ours. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.